Good afternoon, this is Hooting Yard on the Air, my name is Frank Key and I'm going to read to you for half an hour as normal, with some surprises this week possibly. Um, I'm going to begin where we left off last week. Last week's show was devoted entirely to a reading of 40 visits to the worm farm um, and we got from visits number 1 to number 20 and I promised that I would um, begin this show with visits 21 to 40. So here is the conclusion. I'm going to start again. Here is the conclusion of 40 visits to the worm farm. Over the next year or so, I made desperate and repeated attempts to retrieve my bicycle. I think I must have visited the worm farm about 20 times in all. Eventually, on St. Elderberry's Day, I at last tracked down the woman who so long ago had promised to mend my trusty steed. I was roaming disconsolately around the very edge of the worm farm when I saw her emerging from a sort of annex building carrying a massive crate. Upon being confronted, she poured out a sorry tale of such uncompromising stupidity that I had no choice but to believe it. Gracefully, she returned my soiled fiver. She then announced that she was leaving the worm farm to take up an appointment elsewhere. I don't know why she told me this. Apparently she was off to Greenland to do some work involving ice, snow ploughs and huskies. It seemed a bit of a change from worms, I thought. She explained that she felt very bitter about the past months at the worm farm, ever since Canute Hellhound had taken over as director of research. I remembered that I had once had an exciting conversation with this man on the subject of whisks, Bidding Violetta farewell and good luck, I walked over to Hellhound's office. It seemed to have suffered from fire damage. The man who made a half-hearted attempt at greeting me was but a shadow. No longer declaiming in vigorous terms about whisks or anything else come to that, he sat slumped in a rickety metal chair, knocking back the best part of a bottle of hooch. There was a deadened look in his eyes, and he kept up a pathetic, dirge-like moaning all the time I remained with him. After a while, I realised that he was forming, albeit in broken and inarticulate fashion, the same two phrases over and over again. He's in heaven, and I'm not. I tried to find out what in God's name he was going on about, but he met my inquiries with a stare of formidable formidable vacancy. In the end, I could bear it no longer. With an absurd display of affection, I patted him on the head and mussed his filthy hair. Then I left the worm farm for the last time. I caught the bus back to my allotment and spent the rest of the day in my shed, planning marvellous feats with root vegetables. It began to rain, and I looked across at the ruinous state of the turnip patch, I hadn't seen my neighbour since the day he gave me an abortive lift to the worm farm. I made a sudden decision to put his allotment back into good order. Eyeing the packets of turnip seeds on my shelf, I stood up, grabbed hold of my hoe and walked out of the shed into the downpour.
So that was um, last week and this, uh, the entire story, 40 visits to the worm farm. And now um, I'd like to announce a special treat, the Hooting Yard Music Prize 2006. The rules for entry are very, very simple. You have to um, compose and perform a piece of music with words um, taken from anywhere you like on on Hooting Yard. All the texts I read here uh, you can find on the Hooting Yard website. I'm sure regular listeners know that. So that's the first rule, words from Hooting Yard. Second rule is slightly more complicated. Um, The second rule is as follows. In 1895, Marie Corelli published the novel The Sorrows of Satan. And um, in the book, there is a a passage in which the narrator, Geoffrey Tempest, describes listening to a piece of music which is played by um, a character who we don't know but strongly suspect may be the devil. Now, um, this is a piece of music played at a piano, but uh, your entry doesn't need to be a piano piece. It can be whatever you like. But the way Geoffrey Tempest, the narrator of the book, describes the effect this music had listening to it, this is what you should be aiming for. So I'd just like to read this to you now. The music swelled into passionate cadence. Melodies crossed and recrossed each other like rays of light glittering among green leaves. Voices of birds and streams and tossing waterfalls chimed in with songs of love and playful merriment. Anon came wilder strains of grief and angry clamour. Cries of despair were heard, echoing through the thunderous noise of some relentless storm. Farewells everlastingly shrieked amid sobs of reluctant, shuddering agony. And then, as I listened, before my eyes a black mist gathered slowly, and I thought I saw great rocks bursting asunder into flame and drifting islands in a sea of fire. Faces, wonderful, hideous, beautiful, peered at me out of a darkness denser than night, and in the midst of this there came a tune, complete in sweetness and suggestion, a piercing, sword-like tune that plunged into my very heart and rankled there. My breath failed me, my senses swam, I felt that I must move, speak, cry out, and implore that this music, this horribly insidious music, should cease ere I swooned with the voluptuous poison of it, when, with a full chord of splendid harmony that rolled out upon the air like a breaking wave, the intoxicating sounds ebbed away into silence. No one spoke. Our hearts were yet beating too wildly with the pulsations roused by that wondrous lyric storm. Diana Chesney was the first to break the spell. Well, that beats everything I've heard, she murmured. So, if you think your piece of music can elicit that kind of response, um, please do enter. And astonishingly enough... um, What's happened? While I was reading that, someone actually came into the studio clutching a banjo. Um, and you, you're, you are? Mr. Key, my name is David Outer Spaceman, 
and I've travelled this day from the hills of Hoon by Oxen Cart to bring you this song. Well, I'm very pleased to hear it. And what is the song? This song is an ode and hymn to Leo Sayer, or at least Leo Sayer's doppelganger. Thank you. Cold and dark is this awful night As I shiver in my shed The Lord, he has forsaken me And deprived me of my bed I have no pies or pastries To shovel down my gob Oh, the Lord, he has forsaken me All I can do is sob Shed. I weep until the dawn I curse the very buttercups Upon the village lawn The Lord, he has forsaken me And I am so forlorn I wail and gnash my rotting teeth That I was ever born Leo I'm short with frizzy hair I sit here on my wooden shed Upon a wooden chair I curse the fact I share my name With a singer of pop-pap And then I spill my flask Of boiling tea into my lap forsaken me, all I can do is whine. Oh Lord God Almighty, please send me a sign. Please stop people thinking that I'm the singer Leo S., the small of stature minstrel who got me in this Or so I have been told He moved across the globe Because his record's undersold It seems the Lord forsook him too But that is only right I sob and wail within my shed Upon this dark and awful night I feel no thunder in my heart Well, there we had a surprise early entry for the Hooting Yard Music Prize 2006. If you'd like to enter, remember the rules. You'll have to uh, go and buy your copy, self a copy of The Sorrows of Satan by Marie Corelli, page um, 123 of the World, Oxford World's Classics edition, if you wish to uh, familiarise yourself again with the rules and words from something on Hooting Yard. You might want to choose words from this, which is a new story called Fort Hoity.
Came the day the fanatical adherents of Trebizondo Culpepper smashed their way by main force through the huge iron gates of Fort Hoyty. They were both astonished and disappointed to find the fort deserted, save for a tethered goat in the courtyard. The goat's tether extended far enough for it to be able to reach a flower bed by one fort wall, so it was a well-nourished goat as well as a tethered goat. That goat, said the fanatical Trebizondo Culpepper adherent they called Bim, has eaten half the flowers in that flower bed and has not even begun on the weeds. His companions jotted this observation down in their log books under B for Bim. They each used the spidery handwriting they had learned at the feet of Trebizondo Culpepper's pencilling master, the nameless, gravel-voiced Peruvian laundry basket man who had inadvertently sent them to Fort Hoyty in the first place. Replacing their logbooks in their pockets, the adherents gathered about Bim, who was now lolling by a brazier in which hot coals burned still. Clearly the fort had not been long abandoned. This fort has not long been abandoned, said Bim, for the coals in this brazier burn still. But how did the fort people flee? If they had left by the huge iron gates, we would have seen them when we were standing on the hill as dawn broke and we ate our breakfasts. The plans of the fort, which we have studied so conscientiously, show no other exits. This, then, is a highly perplexing circumstance. I wonder if that goat, in addition to being tethered and well-fed, is also a talking goat. The fanatical adherent known as Bam slapped his forehead. For crying out loud, Bim, he shouted, have you taken leave of your senses? There's no such thing under the heavens as a goat that speaks human languages. That is the stuff of fairy tales. The other fanatical adherents mumbled together as a group. Both Bim and Bam had them confused now, for they had expected to enter Fort Hoyty through main force and to be chopping and slashing and unleashing madcap havoc. Instead, they were standing around mumbling and pondering the connection, if there was one, between fairies, elves, sprites and goats. The fanatical adherent named Diocletian, much mustachioed, raised the topic of tethering. If one could tether a goat, as the Fort Hoity goat had been tethered, could one tether a fairy? Would a fairy not be nimble enough to slip its bonds? To this, Pembroket suggested that a fairy could surely be tethered by using gossamer-thin magical thread. The mumbling grew louder. Time was passing. Bim made an announcement. Not many leagues yonder is Fort Toity. I know in my bones that that is where the Fort Hoity people have gone. I know not how they got there, but that is where they must be. We shall leave a team here to secure the place, and the rest of us will march like the clappers to Fort Toity, and we shall untether that goat and take it with us. And so, over two days, Bim and his bedraggled gang of fanatical Trebizondo Culpepper adherents began traipsing across the plain, whistling as they marched. Those who had not undergone whistling training parped hooters instead, or imitated crows, corncrakes and loons. 
Every so often they would stop and sit and eat from their bags of confectionery and Bim or Bam would make pronouncements and the band of fanatical adherents would jot down their aperçus. All sorts of subjects related to the teachings of Trebizondo Culpepper were covered, from dishwater and clanging noises to oil slicks and the bossa nova, from freckles and optometry to cuddy and tack. They tied a colourful and perfumed rag to one ear of the untethered goat and let it lead the way across the plain towards Fort Toity. So who were they, the people they pursued, who had fled from Fort Hoity to Fort Toity and who were now being borne down upon, slowly but surely, by the fanatical adherents of Trebizondo Culpepper and an untethered goat? Well, first, they were the people who made miniature cardboard hens and placed them on the sides of paths. And second, they execrated the very name of Trebizondo Culpepper regularly, every night in fact, as they sat around their brazier of hot coals staring at the moon if it was visible through the clouds. If the moon was not visible, they shut their eyes. They would sit quite still for so long that birds would nest in their hair and moss grow upon their feet. There were more than a hundred of them and they worshipped nothing, not even the tethered goat they had so cruelly abandoned back at Fort Hoity. Why did they not take the goat with them as they fled? This is the kind of question the out-of-print pamphleteer Dobson would have addressed had he been alive at the time of which I write. But he was yet to be born. It's hard for us to imagine a world without Dobson, a world where inexplicable things could happen, did happen, and there was no hastily scribbled pamphlet issued within days or weeks to make sense of events. How one would have longed for even a few precious pages entitled Why those who fled Fort Hoity for Fort Toity to escape the fanatical adherents of Trebizondo Culpepper cruelly abandoned their tethered goat, with footnotes and a map. A map would certainly have been of use to the pursuers who became utterly lost on that barren plain. Try as they might, they could not find Fort Toity. They wandered for months, led by the goat, until their confectionery bags were empty and the batteries on Bim's portable metal tapping machine were dead. They were far from home, exhausted and hungry and increasingly rancorous. Pembrokeette, in particular, was thoroughly frazzled and took to poking his fellows with a pointy stick until they took it away from him and stamped on his toes until he promised to desist. And desist he did, for he fell victim to an ague, sweating and shaking and babbling incoherent gibberish. Bam accused him of having a spurious ague to elicit sympathy. Diocletian said, this is not the first time you have made an accusation of spurious ague, Bam. Do you have an ide fixe? Bam replied, Yes, I do. Is that so wrong? But Pembrokeette's ague was all too real, and it was on the Thursday morning he expired out on that plain that the fanatical adherents of Trebizondo Culpepper were plunged into despair. And one by one, they all perished, and with them perished the cult of Trebizondo Culpepper.
Every now and then, of course, it's very useful on Hooting Yard to entertain you with um, a moral tale. And um, here is a moral here is a moral fable. I'm sure that you'll be able to take this on board. Brethren, we find ourselves today in a village in China. Perhaps some would feel inclined to ridicule rather than applaud the patience of a poor Chinese woman who tried to make a needle from a rod of iron by rubbing it against a stone. We may scoff and laugh and snicker like rude and common folk do. It is doubtful whether she succeeded or not, but so the story runs. The sight of the worker plying her seemingly hopeless task put new courage and determination into the heart of a young Chinese student who, in deep despondency, stood watching her. He was a spindly little chap whose greatest joy was to be found in the study of industrious leaf-cutter ants, of which he kept teeming thousands in a glass case in the parlour of his pneumonia-racked mother. Because of repeated failures in his studies, ambition and hope had left him. He could think only of ants. Bitterly disappointed with himself and despairing of ever accomplishing anything, the young man had thrown his books aside in disgust. He had even cast aside a five-volume encyclopedia devoted entirely to the world of insects. Ants alone filled the pages of books one and two. Put to shame, however, by the lesson taught by the old woman, he gathered his scattered forces together, went to work with renewed ardour, and, wedding patience and energy, became in time one of the great scholars in China. Actually, that's not strictly true. He ended up sewing cummerbunds for export in a Batavian sweatshop. When you know you're on the right track, do not let any failures dim your vision or discourage you, for you cannot tell how close you may be to victory. And even if every damn thing goes wrong, there is no shame in being a deluded pauper. Have patience and stick, stick, stick. Then stick a bit more. It is eternally true that he who steers right on will gain at length however far the port, though he be seasick all the way and quite bereft of thought. It's not often that the, the, a show closes with a preamble.